Welcome to the Daily Horror Habit Podcast. I'm your host, Jay Krieger, bringing you daily reviews of current and classic horror movies for your twisted pleasure. Be aware that these reviews and discussions may include spoilers. And as always, I hope you enjoy. installment to my year-long Masters of Horror celebration, in which I'm joined by a guest every Friday to chat about one of their favorite films from our month's featured director. For the month of February, we're honoring none other than the late and great zombie godfather himself, George A. Romero. And today's episode highlights the third installment in Romero's zombie series, 1985's Day of the Dead. Following a small team of scientists who are living in a missile silo with trigger-happy soldiers who battle desperately to ensure the survival of the human race. But as tensions inside the silo begin to reach their breaking point, they realize that the actual threat is inside the silo with them. And to break down Romero's underground zombie film is returning friend of the show and BloodyDisgusting.com's video game editor, Neil Bolt. Neil, welcome back to the show. Hiya. It's good to be back, Jay. I must say. It feels long awaited in a way. (laughs) Well, I've enjoyed having you on so much that I uh, figured I would have you back on to chat about Romero. Mm -hmm. And then I'm really excited, especially that you picked Day of the Dead, because that's a film that the first time I watched it as a kid, it didn't click with me the same way that Night of the Living Dead did or Dawn of the Dead. And it's one of those films, especially within uh, that trio of uh, dead films that Romero did, it's the one that has I've grown the most appreciation mm. for. It's one that the older I get, the themes of it and the sort of more character-driven nature of it really resonates with me more as an adult than it did initially as a kid yeah it's definitely one that's had layers and you know, i didn't really discover it till teen years you know, and as i said it was the trilogy was always on a loop on the dvd player at night you know, as, as a tool to help me sleep as you <laughs> uh, to the point to the point the um the uh, rather violent sounding menu noises uh <laughs> pretty much my uh, snooze button if you will it's just like in here <laughs> I, I dread to think what anyone walking by on a night where the window is open for all they can hear is just this gunfire <laughs> and screams <laughs> just constantly going yeah back then it was just yeah oh this is nice this is a very mean spirited sequel where there's little hope and that you know is always a thing that has stayed with that film i think throughout but yeah it, it's just gets more and more layers to it i think it, it 
has more depth than I think people give credit for. You know, it's a the later films and the dead, this and Land of the Dead have something a bit different. You know, it's um, but this as a capper to that original trilogy of films, whether intentional or not, ends up being perfect in a way in, in how it sort of rounds things out. You know, it, it's the end of the cycle of hope. It's the end of the cycle of trying to figure it all out and the acceptance of we're done with this. You know, we can't do anything about it anymore. Let's try and do what we can with what we got left. Yeah, it's something, it's a quality that I've really come to appreciate in that while there's no continuation of a specific narrative or character arc between the three films, the original trilogy, it's more about kind of just the themes of what you, how people deal with and sort of come to terms with the reality of like the apocalypse, right? Because you have this first film where everybody is trying to figure out what the hell is going on. Then you have in Dawn of the Dead, people that are adapting now, Mm. finally. And then Day of the Dead really is the perfect ending to that original trilogy where, okay, we've established what's happening, we've established how people respond to this, but then the idea that there's any real hope left in the world is kind of just been uh, a pipe dream, essentially, for the course of these three films. And the reality being that, yeah, this is our new reality, Mm. and there isn't there isn't really a better version of where we're at, right? The idea that there's going to be a cure for this has always been a fantasy, essentially, of survivors. This idea that we'll ever go back to a sense of normal, but this is just their new normal, is that you live in this post-apocalyptic world that's ravaged by the undead. And then, essentially, what I love about the film is that the focus almost shifts from the zombies more so just to this is how people essentially respond to it and how... The reality is, is that we will be our own undoing in a time of crisis or an apocalypse in that we really are, it's our inability to accept the realities and to work with one another is going to be our uh, downfall, essentially. But um, before we really dive too much into Day of the mm. Dead, I'm curious um, what your sort of origin story is with Romero. What was the uh, like first introduction that you had to his films? So um, it ended up being one of those... That- going to my nan's house and certain things being on sort of thing where it was another time of it was a double bill of the remake and the original like the living dead and you know back then black and white films you're a kid you're youngish and you're like mm, you know i don't appreciate that so as much it was fun entertaining but it didn't connect with me probably like it did later probably why i don't you know off the free in the original trilogy Night's weakest for me, which is yeah, it's, it's a five star trilogy in my eyes. But so the you know the weakest of three five star films is still a five star film. <laughs> but yeah, <laughs> but yeah, but the, you know the remake very much struck me as well. You know Savini's take on it, which, and I think that helped me appreciate the original a bit more and just how they sort of modernized and updated several aspects of it. But yeah, it's, I think. There's a quality to Night of the Living Dead that you know, has that B-movie feel to it, given you know its low budget and how it was. And it's yeah, I you know I was grew up with the idea of you know watching like those trashy '60s TV shows where it's like some gimmick of the week thing, and 
like that and mm -hmm. it's sort of an extension of that and so that was a strange way of considering coming to the rest of it came from an obsession with you know zombies and finding out more and more about them and you know, the resident evil games sort of happening at the time and yeah then the chance for dawn of the dead to be on tv for the first time year ever in our in this country i think was and uh on a double bill with zombie flesh eaters and mm. yeah that that pretty much solidified it for my love of romero i think more than anything and it's just that weird connection where you know video games kind of helped because you know romero did the directed a trailer for the uh, resident evil 2 and around the same time and i was obsessed with that game and yeah it, it sort of opened this whole new world of the undead up to me and yeah just and day of the dead which i think yeah, so many years later by comparison there's you know, such a gap for me watching each you know and most people mm -hmm. come to it late they probably see the trilogy in a row now and that's the way it is but then no yeah you know there was genuine gaps of many years between each film uh, like there were with that and it you do sort of see that evolution of it and now for a brief intermission if you've been enjoying this episode of Daily Horror Habit, please take a moment to subscribe to the show on your preferred streaming platform or leave us a review on iTunes. And thank you for your continued support, and I hope you enjoy the remainder of today's horrifying episode. Yeah, I came to Romero in a very similar way where I was like at my grandparents' house and they had on Night of the Living Dead on TV or something like that, and I kind of stumbled upon it. But growing up in the 90s, when I came to it, it wasn't like, we didn't have the internet like it was now, obviously, where it's like, oh, you watch a movie and then you're gonna research and look up all the things and oh, there's actually two sequels to this. When I saw Night of the Living Dead, it was one of those things where, like you had said, there was a gap in between when I saw Night and Dawn and Day to the point where it was probably like five or six years before I would even see another film in that trilogy. So it's very interesting, I think, this idea that you can, there was a time when you could discover a movie and then not even know it has a larger connection mm. to not only the genre, but in terms of just like this world that Romero had built. And it's why I think his films age so well. In addition to that is that like you're very captivated no matter which of the trilogy you come to first. It's very uh, striking and shocking imagery that he has in his films. And it's why obviously they were so groundbreaking and they still are some of the best of the uh, subgenre. But at the same time, the more that you visit these films, and especially Day of the Dead, the themes in that really stand out more and more, obviously. When you're a kid, that stuff goes over oh, your yeah, head. Absolutely. But watching Night of the Living Dead as a kid versus as an adult or a teenager, you obviously begin to pick up on more of the elements. You begin to see themes and uh, subjects that are raised in the film that you can relate to in a certain way. And that, for me, is why Day of the Dead, I'm so happy that you wanted to talk about this one because it's one that... I've really found to grow more and more my appreciation for it, just the older and older I get. Yeah, and it's, you know, you can watch films a lot of times and not really come away. You know, there's comfort films that you can watch, just slap on and go, that's fine. Didn't really learn much else from watching it again. I, I mean, as a case in point, um, Avengers Age of Ultron. It's like, I watch it so many times. I've watched it more than most Marvel films. And it's a comfort thing. I like it, but I don't. I know it's not the greatest film, and a lot of them, it really doesn't stay with me in a lot of ways that some of the others do. But something like Day of the Dead is just, as you said, has sort of 
it's an onion of a film. It, you know, it has layer after layer after layer that you can find in it. Uh, more, and uh, yeah, naturally more so than the, the previous two films in the trilogy because it's you know, an older Romero, you know, an angrier Romero in a lot of ways, you know, not making the film he wanted to, and, and his you know, political views of how the things are, and yeah, and just at where it is in the trilogy in terms of you know, pushing forward the themes he's had, you know, going through the themes of isolation, the themes of connections, the themes of, you know, having this sort of uh, cabin fever effect, which, you know, as you go from film to film, first film, they're barely in the place together. It's all chaos and everyone's at each other's throats, but it's one night, you know, and then dawn is you know, a longer time period and they try to get on and then they yeah it starts setting in they have a bit more infighting as they go on but you know not they're born out of comfort you know they've got to the point where we're trying to pretend to be normal and it's not really feeling right and that's why they end up sort of at each other in a way but not to the degree that you then get day where everybody wants to be a bit normal but they kind of accept that it's not and so everyone's fighting their own little power struggles trying to grasp that last scrap of power in a world that doesn't need it anymore you know there's you know it shows in the soldiers it shows in the scientists they're all chasing something that doesn't matter anymore and it, it takes the events of the film to sort of make that and realize that you know whether through uh realization or death yeah and it's people's lack of like not willing to accept the reality of the situation and i think that chasing a lost cause for me is what makes this movie more so like a tragedy than a lot than the other two films that uh came before it in that it really is about two groups of people that have two skill sets that could be beneficial in an apocalypse and yet this lack of communication causes chaos and it causes this kind of like little microcosm society that they've created to collapse Mm. and again it's in that miscommunication or lack of communication nobody is willing to admit that the foundation of this uh haven to a certain extent that they've crafted is crumbling and to see them fight against that reality when they have the resources to a certain degree that they could actually like begin to make a plan for how to actually like move forwards as one instead of fracturing and moving off in different directions and causing more rifts that really speaks to kind of the tragic nature of the fact that it's almost like our own ignorance or our own kind of just like headstrong nature to view somebody else's goals as being oppositional to our own and to see that divide cause is a thing that especially like over the last i don't know four or five years i have seen trickle out into real world or be more apparent, I guess, in Mm. real life. And so to see a film like this that tackles that theme, it's very, it's a, it's a uh, very kind of just damning indictment of like where we are and how perhaps society hasn't gone, hasn't evolved as far socially or politically or whatnot as we think that it has. Sure, because, you know, a lot of times the the real needs of the world are obscured by a lot of the loudest people in the room and mm. when the room is only a few people left to really shout the toss it's uh you know they're gonna get heard whether anyone else cares or not and 
Yeah, you think of all these gimmicky science advancements we have, which don't really benefit anyone, but they sound exciting. And, you know, that's a very much a thing of the now and here and now, you know, where some new technology will come out or some gimmicky sort of idea comes out for something like that. And it'll be, oh, it's amazing. Everyone, you know, more so than, hey, we've discovered this way of stopping climate change being a problem or, you know, no one wants to listen to the facts so much as this seems immediate and easy and we're not going to think about the consequences of thinking this very granular thing through. And, you know, that, that's the science side of it. And very much with the military side of it, where they just want, they don't want anything that, like that. They want immediate answers, but they want the answers that suit them. You know, they, they want it to be their agenda, their style, and that's the, the political side of Day of the Dead. It's pretty much like, well, we could meet in the middle on this, but we think your ideas are shit, and you think our ideas are shit, and that's it. And it's just going to be... <laughs> and even the, the apathetic party in that, uh, in John and uh, McDermott, they, you know, who pretty much outright say, we don't give a shit about any of this. We don't believe any of it, but we're useful and this, we'd rather, we'd get away if we could. Like that. Even they, you know, are argumentative in their own little way. And that's it. No one group wants to listen to the other. And the only salvation ends up being are the people that sort of listen to each other and cross paths. And yeah, it, it just shows that communication does still matter. But it becomes increasingly difficult when the stakes are so far against you. Really, this is probably his most of the Dead trilogy, like the most cynical view in that. I'm sure when they found this haven, this underground bunker that they're residing in, that is seen as sort of like the newfound, uh, like a new civilization, which we will rise up against this undead plague from. And this is going to be a hub of sorts to kind of revitalize the country. And yet we don't even know how long they've been there. And it's this idea that essentially everybody is going to be reduced to almost like their primal instincts, right? And I think obviously the military in the film is the depict the most literal depiction of that, where we want immediate answers now. We don't want to hear about things that could help in a month or a year or something like that. We want answers now. And it it's interesting that Romero has so, essentially had that character type that was in the, um, the military leader. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, Captain Rhodes. Yeah. Essentially, there's been a Captain Rhodes in all of his films, right? There's always been this figure that has been obsessed with power. And as soon as they have that power challenged, it ultimately becomes the undoing of whatever sort of haven, whether it be a farmhouse, a shopping mall, or this underground bunker. And um, I think, for me at least, this is the film where the characters are given the most amount of breathing room to feel very organic to the situation. Mm. I mean, in Night you have it being a single night, right? Yeah. And so you only get to know these characters under the most heightened circumstances. And then in Dawn, it's over a period of time where they can actually go from being like scared and terrified on the run to finding a haven to then be being having like the mundane nature of what it means to actually survive and struggling with the idea that you it's easy to survive after a certain point. It's more finding a reason to want to survive that pushes you on. You almost end up in self-sabotage as they do in the end of Dawn, where it's like, they could have got away with it. They could have just, you know, had Flyboy just left it all alone. They would have 
looted the place and they could have moved on. And, but I think it was just that desire for action, which again bleeds through today. That this need that some people feel like, well, no, what you're doing can't be the solution. So I feel I need to do something about this, and whether that's right or wrong, which usually isn't. Um, yeah, I love the setting in um, Day of the Dead too. This underground bunker where we barely see the surface for a majority of the film because it makes for the perfect setting for this sort of powder keg of tension that's building from the moment the helicopter lands at the beginning when they've been flying 100 miles up and down the coast and they haven't found anybody, and then to the very end of the film when they finally do reach the surface again. I mean, it being, it's obviously not lost on me that it's an overwhelming majority of the group are men. Mm. It's 99% men, (laughs) and then there's the one woman in the group. And so that adds a layer of tension to it as well, right? And they even, when the soldiers begin to... um, increase their rather uh, their rather strict uh, martial law that they enact when the previous captain dies who is a little more sympathetic to the scientists and they basically are talking about court-martialing people because they won't sit down yeah. they even throw the implication at her of talking about like well you're one woman think about what could happen to you basically like mm. threatening almost to like the sexual assault aspect to that and that is just another layer to the film that adds tension whether it's being a woman in an all-group, an all-male group, or whether it's the reality, hey, we're running out of food and ammo. And it's a film that really utilizes that setting of it being super claustrophobic, being very, very dark, and it just serving the narrative in the film in a way that, while the other two films, I think the settings were great in that it it supplemented or it, uh, complemented, rather, the angle that he was taking with each of those films. For this, it's the same exact thing. And if anything, it's a more heightened version in terms of a zombie movie that doesn't have a lot of sort of like memorable or maybe it doesn't have an abundance of zombie kills or zombie highlighting moments Mm. like uh, decapitations and things like that as much as the other ones. But the setting of it really does heighten these tense moments between just two people or a group of people arguing. Yeah, and I can see why people find it to be a bit hammy and over the top in terms of everyone shouting at each other. But everyone's shouting at each other because nobody's listening. They are just, that's all they have left. The only way they can show they have anything in a way of authority is to shout at each other and make themselves heard over the other. And yeah, it's like you were saying, the uh, dynamic there of, you know, who's expendable and who isn't and who's useful and who isn't and the frightening thing there is again the very military driven way of thinking well we're not going to give a shit about the science so you know we can throw that away in a heartbeat but we're going to have to kind of rely on the guy who can fly the plane and the guy who can fix things and we might listen to the guy the the scientists who will as they put talk talk around a corner and you know it's a thing again that feels very relevant in terms of just you know we won't listen to logic and reason necessarily and you know outside frankenstein uh, the others uh scientists are a bit more reasoned in trying to think that you know we understand this is difficult we understand that we don't have all the answers but we need time like that yes it's still a delusion that they need time because there's it's not there they'll never get enough and they never have enough equipment to ever make it work and that's why they still hang on to the hope of finding someone else and hope that well, if someone else is out there maybe they can do it yeah you know, maybe they can help 
and yeah I, that, that ends up being more the hope of why they want to find anyone else rather than well we just don't, don't want to be in this situation and having it, they don't want to have the responsibility any of them I think at that point uh, bar Frankenstein maybe who's you know, pretty much wound up in his own little world at that point uh, yeah they, they want to be out of it and they are finding trying to find a way out of it subconsciously at least throughout the whole film yeah and I think that in, in you bringing up uh, Frankenstein Dr. Frankenstein <laughs> in the film I think his character really stood out to me a lot more on this rewatch and I started to view him almost similar to Captain Rhodes in the sense that while Rhodes is the antagonist of the film at the same time he is the extreme in terms of like the military side right where he as rambunctious and drunk and mean-spirited as his soldiers are none of them necessarily take it to the degree where they start threatening to murder one mm. another we see them fighting and things like that but it never gets to the point where they're like shoving guns in people's faces up until a certain point in the film whereas Rhodes as soon as Sarah starts disregarding what he's saying to the point where she stands up he's like you have to sit down or i'm gonna have him kill you like rhodes is obviously the height the most extreme version of authority there at the same time frankenstein is the most extreme version of the scientists right where you have the other two scientists that aren't nearly as wrapped up in this uh dr frankenstein experiments as he is and they kind of like have certain realizations that he is starting to lose it. And of course, we're given more and more examples of that further yeah. into the film. They're like, some of this, we agree, we used to agree with the way that you were handling things, but now it's gotten to the point where you're cutting off zombie heads and leaving the brains and hooking them up to like uh, electrons and things and triggering them so they move when they're like, that's getting a little too, yeah. uh, <laughs> you're going down a kind of rabbit hole that if you don't stop, like you're no better than roads to a certain extent where you're just at, two ends of the extremes and you can't you no longer listen to reason or you no longer are open to listening to other people's uh interpretations of things or just the general direction they think that we should head in yeah yeah absolutely that is. but yeah and something that i was also really impressed with is just how the cast sized this is the biggest cast i think that they've had in one of these films mm. and yet so many characters are i think they're so much better defined than in night or dawn in terms of just how characters are ex essentially like the extremes of the different factions that are in this world but or in this um subterranean world that they've created yeah. but then like you said there are characters that are sort of neutral in terms of like we're just here and we're gonna ride out like the luxury that our skill set affords us which is like john who's the pilot and so his ability to be like i'm the only one that can fly that gives him a certain amount of freedom and respect, essentially. But if he wasn't that skilled, he wouldn't have that respect or that status within this uh, small community that they have. And so I think it's interesting that you have characters that are indifferent to the plights of both of those groups, the military and the scientists. And yet they're almost the extremes of being neutral, yeah. right? Instead of just sitting around and maybe like, I don't know, doing something that could benefit everybody or even themselves they kind of sit around and just get drunk and hang out all the time which yeah. doesn't sound too bad in no, apocalypse no, so you can do that <laughs> safely but at after a while i would think that that would uh you you would maybe try to find something else yeah. to do but i don't I know. think again they are the film's way of depicting acceptance of where we're at you know it, sure they're 
going to be a bit caustic to anyone else as a result of that because everyone else is at a different level. You know, they are still in denial that this is, you know, thinking this has got a solution to the problem, as John pretty much says. Uh, you know, it, he says he says that to Sarah that there is, you know, there is no big solution to this. You can't approach it like that. It, it isn't going to happen. And she, you know, she does twig that as time goes on, but. It's, it needs to be sort of addressed repeatedly and it's you know and that's the thing it's never shouted the point that they're making that you know this is all futile and they're, they're not being mean to say it you know when when they do sit down with sarah in their little paradise grotto and sort of say that it's like and she's sort of questioning well, what do you do around here really other than that it's like, oh, well, you know, well, we don't believe in any of this we don't care we, we it's not to say we don't you know we just don't want to know. That's it. If we had a choice, we would go somewhere else. But for now, this is where it's probably best. But they can sense, you know, the, the wind is changing, so to speak, in terms of, you know, now Rhodes is in power. Clearly, someone who was never meant to have that much power. Right? You know, he's not meant to be at that level, and he can't handle it. And that shows in the way he tries to handle it. And his men have given up because they're seeing their numbers, you know dwindled they're blaming the scientists because that's the general feeling that you know hypocritical in a lot of ways because you see steel when he um says to McDermott across the table bickering at him about drinking all the time because he's always having you know, the, this is where there's a bit more subtle storytelling in what Romero does is that you know he's there sat there having a go at him about drinking and in front of him is several empty cans which are clearly beer cans yeah. and it's like <laughs> Yeah. He has this thing of seeing it, well, that's, that's just what I do. That's like a few beers is nothing, you know, but you drinking that whiskey, oh, no, it's terrible. Like that. And yeah, mm. and it's just, it's again, the grand illusion for them is that, that they're, you know, oh, they're all bad. It's not our fault. We didn't do anything wrong. We're putting our lives on the line all the time. But, you know, at the same time, they're probably the most dangerous people in terms of what they do, you know, in causing problems for themselves because they just, they want excitement and recklessly so and i think this goes back to what we're saying about dawn of the dead and even in night of the living dead where a character will you know out of almost not boredom but just out of a need to have something happening will just start prodding and pushing at things for it to happen yeah and i think that also like it speaks again to this idea that the hierarchy sets in once the one person that should have been in charge is no longer in charge and I love the ambiguity too around how Rhodes came to power. They just kind of leave it at, oh, this commander died. He passed mm. away. But who really knows about that, right? Maybe given how kind of like tapped Rhodes is and how unstable he is clearly, and he we're almost introduced to him when he is starting to peak at being unstable and kind of going full, full commando, I'm going to start executing people. Yeah. So for me, like I always, I always think now whenever I watch this, I'm like, oh, he killed that other guy that he disagreed yeah. with. And he killed him because he knew that the people that would have uh, responded negatively to that or objected to that were off flying up and down the coast looking for survivors. So that was really like his moment to kind of seize power, something that he felt justified in taking, which that ambiguity really tells you all you need to know, I feel, about his character. And you can tell from the first 30 seconds of being introduced to him that this is somebody that does not have the temperament 
to be in charge of anything. Yeah, I mean, interesting. If you look when when they arrive from the, their excursion in the helicopter uh, at the beginning, they come back and they see Steel and Rickles, I think it is, um, and, who are there to meet them. And they talk. They, they talk quite normally to each other. You know, it's quite. There's no hostility like there is when they then sit down later and Rhodes sort of sets the tone for what it's going to be like because obviously you know it's only just happened the the death of the, the previous leader and yeah it, it does show you that they that he's pushing that hostility further that he which does sort of lend to what you're saying about you know he probably killed him because you know he's clearly wanted this power he's not ready for it but he's wanted it and that little change in tone whether intentional or not feels like you know it's like we don't know the tony setting we, we just wanted someone else in charge to see something different and yet they sort of go along with it and so he sort of indulges their ma- their behavior a bit more as well i think in that he knows that they know that he's not gonna you know chew them out for it he's just going to go and blame everyone else for what happens it's that whole idea of like lead by example Mm. right and as soon as you as soon as somebody above you begins acting in a way that or they're setting the tone with their behavior in a way that is not in the best interest of the group certain people especially if it's the end of the world like there's there's laws and rules for a reason and as soon as those are stripped away what happens we end up basically infighting which then begins in us killing off one another and then that society haven that they've crafted begins to crumble and i think that it's a very cynical lens that romero paints this world with in a way that i find is more cynical than even uh the previous film with his depiction of how people deal with resource hoarding and wanting everything even if it means taking it from somebody whereas in this it's actually people that are in a position of power before the apocalypse even begins in dawn of the dead it's Sure, there's a cop, there's uh, two cops actually, but the people that start the fighting and the fight over resources are just like random survivors. Mm. They're just normal people. So to a certain extent, you would, I mean, maybe it's cynical on my part, but I would assume that people would react that way, that certain groups of people are going to take advantage of the fact that there's no law and order. Mm. They're going to, if they see something that they want, well, nobody's going to stop me, so I'm going to take it. And so to see that same characteristic in two groups of people that had power before the apocalypse, which are people, scientists and people in the military, and see them begin to be reduced to those sort of primal instincts really is a very cynical look. And it's not to say that it's in a unrealistic one in terms of the angle and the perception of uh, human beings. And for me, it's probably why why Day of the Dead did not resonate with me as much as a kid, because I was probably one of those people saying, well, it's just a bunch of people shouting the whole movie. There's like barely any zombies in it. But as an adult, obviously, in getting to appreciate films for more than just like the gory zombie moments, yeah. it resonates with a lot of real world um, issues, but also just perceptions of people. And it is a much, like you said, you described it as an onion. Yeah. There are a lot more layers to this than I think the previous two films, mostly because the, th- the threat of death is not immediate. Mm. Right. They could live out the rest of their days in this bunker to a certain extent, or they could live out a certain period of time. It's not so much like day to day survivability. Mm. It's more dealing with the tedium of what surviving means. But then also you get to the point where 
they've been in the apocalypse for so long that they now are being reduced to this infighting that uh, that we've mentioned. Yeah, and the fact is, you know, they're all going to bicker because they're human and their enemy is unified in what they want. They want to come in, they want to eat them. That's it. That's all they will ever want. And it's disturbing if you think about it that when they discover that they can learn, you know, the undead can learn and maybe change, that they don't think that's a bad thing. Uh, there's, there's a bad side to that. Is you know that again comes into the the delusion of you know Frankenstein there thinking oh well you know we can teach them which you know is ridiculous on a, multiple levels because you know you can't teach one one's not going to go out and teach the rest how to do it or it's like if you, if you, but no one ever again no one ever points that out in their arguments they just see the extremes of it and they go no this is bullshit they're not going to give you any reasons why it's bullshit it's just bullshit and that's it and everyone else is too afraid to say anything else but yeah the, the fact that you know and it goes into land of the dead in the end if you think about it in terms of how they evolve that idea of the undead learning and that is what they should be afraid of it's the idea that if they stop being just the things the mindless things outside that want to eat you and then they figure out ways to trick you or ways to get through simple barriers then you're done for because there'll be no way you can go you know it's like and yeah, and that's what, you know, you get to land, that's where they've taken that for granted. You know, because they've lived with it so long in the background, they've accepted it, walled it off. And then when it comes knocking, you know, they're not ready for it again. And it, there's that great line from Frankenstein when he says that they're in that meeting and he's like, the time when you could have outgunned them or you could have killed them mm. all has been long gone. You're still holding on to this dying dream that we're going to get all the guns and all the bombs and missiles and things and kill all of them because now it's they're 400,000 to one of us or something mm. to that extent. And so to see people latch onto that and to firmly deny the reality that the real threat is the idea that if one of them is learning, then potentially like they could teach the others how to do that. They can't even contend with them when they're mindless. Mm. So how are they going to contend with them? And we see obviously in Land of the Dead, what happens when they do start working together and the fact that if they're able to get through barriers and use weapons, yeah, they, essentially Day of the Dead shows that it almost doesn't matter that they're evolving to a certain degree, that there's this kind of like zombie domestication uh, subplot that's building in terms of going from day to land. Yeah. But it's more about that the fundamental thing that we keep coming back to is a lack of communication. Mm. If you don't have that basic human instinct, still uh, as being a part of like the social contract nothing that your efforts in anything that you want to do no matter what the plan or solution is is going to be futile and that really is like the more frightening part of this film and what is i think you you put it this way you said it was disturbing like that's the most disturbing part because mm. you might look at some people might look at this film and might say like well yeah that's just a uh, that's an extreme example of miscommunication or a resistance to communication. But then when you look at the parallels of the real world and you see people in positions of power on a daily, nightly basis, you see it on the news or whatever, arguing about things that shouldn't, that should seem like no brainers yeah. because of whatever uh, biases they have and things like that. You're like, well, the film is not so ridiculous anymore. The ridiculous part is the dead coming back to yeah. life. But considering day of the dead, like, 75, 80% of the movie is all about people and bickering and an unwillingness to uh, 
to come together in unity with one another, the majority of that film is not unrealistic. The majority of that film is not far-fetched by any means. It's more, I think it's why the film is so successful is that Romero is able to compartmentalize this social commentary and um, different just in terms of societal commentaries. Mm. It really is his ability to compartmentalize that into a zombie, into a genre movie. But then, of course, it's more than that. Just to say it's a zombie movie is overly reductive. And yeah, yeah, I mean, and that, that's the key thing for all of those films is that you know, zombies are part of it, but they're never... In a way that, you know, I think I said this before, is that the, you know, many modern takes on zombie things don't... If they put zombies in the background to... Tr- focus on the human struggle the walking dead for instance does this a lot you know the zombies became less and less and less of a thing which is fine you know you focus on the human struggle but it's always the same kind of human struggle it's like this team in power want to take over everyone else's team in power and that's it and everyone fights till someone else someone's in power next bit and in that the zombies become the background uh, to the point where they aren't the reason the problem exists anymore. You know, they, they aren't the catalyst for everything that's happening. And that's where, you know, Romero's films are different. They, they have, they understand that even though they aren't always at the forefront of everything that's going on, they are the reason everything is going on. Even if they're not there, it's you know, the unseen enemy, no matter where you are. They, they, they are still preying on your mind and making every decision for you whether you know it or not. And I think that that's why I appreciate the film essentially being bookended by the biggest zombie moments in the mm. film. Obviously, we get them sprinkled throughout the middle of the film, like when they're bringing in test subjects. But really, that opening, which, again, is a fantastic uh, just display of the evolution in Savini's practical work, of course. Mm. Like, the practical work in this is gorgeous, even if there isn't necessarily as much of it maybe as in Dawn of the Dead. But the film opens with that. You get to see a variety. It's not just these gray-skinned zombies like in Dawn. We've seen an evolution in the makeup, in the practical effects. We see them with missing jaws, and we see reptiles mixed in with them. We see alligators, (laughs) and then you see tarantulas crawling on their faces. But then in the end of the film, obviously, when they all are brought into the base, we get some of the best practical kills, I think, in the Dawn trilogy. Mm -hmm natural or in the dead trilogy naturally because of the evolution in that but uh how do you how do you think of savini's uh, practical work plays out in day of the dead oh yeah i mean it's it was instantly a response to as they said the whole thriller thing of making zombies look silly you know and they they wanted to change that a bit and they are you know yeah a right leap ahead from what you saw in dawn you know in terms of what they look like. i mean it unless you grew up with dawn in a way it, it the zombies are a bit daft, let's be honest, looking at them. They are just people in grey makeup. And that's fine, but, you know, that gets overshadowed by the, the other practical effects that happen, like the tearing and the this, that and the other. Those are the things that you remember, not so much the zombies themselves uh, in design, apart from one or two, which, you know, the standouts, you know, like the one that adorns the front cover of that film a lot of the time. And, and the... Uh, Chopper zombie, you know, the one that gets decapitated, semi decapitated. Uh, but yeah, whereas Day has so many you know, of various kinds, you know, from Bub to, you know, the nastier looking ones, the 
one that appears just the titles come up uh, with the jaw missing as you said just everything dripping out it's crazy uh, the, the alligator thing at the beginning is interesting just using a live alligator but uh, you know the, the nicer that film looks the easier it is to see it's got it's you know it's got rubber bands around its uh, snout so it doesn't bite anyone in it well mm-hmm. <laughs> which just leads to think of well, how's it still alive <laughs> so <laughs> Right. <laughs> I think too the uh, not only are the practical effects used really well, of course, because of the evolution and that technology mm-hmm. and kind of just the the deployment of those things for the uh, most bite for your buck. But um, in terms of the setting, right, the setting really complements it because I don't know how ma- I would imagine that there are less extras in this film than there were in something like Dawn of the Dead, where you could see a yeah. hundred extras on screen at once. Whereas in this, since it's such a claustrophobic environment, it's an instance of doing more with less, right? You don't have to have 100 people because you have this very creepy, multifaceted environment that I love. And I love how we explore every different environment with zombies in the second half of the film. You don't have to have them go above ground again and introduce a new environment with the zombies. Mm -hmm. We have them in the entrance. We have them in the main mess hall. And then it's like in the caverns. We have that whole chase sequence where the protagonists escape essentially from the military and they're running through and decapitating and brainshotting zombies. But it's the way that they really present that environment with the zombies and showing the zombies essentially like overwhelming them Mm. that I think makes those kills a lot more memorable in this film than in probably the ones that preceded it. Just because there are, well, I don't know about comparing it to night, but obviously the practical effects in this are better just in terms of like, again, that evolution of uh, abilities and deployment of those, but the kills are so much more involving in this, yeah. in the way that I think in Dawn, it was much more kind of just like, yeah, you see a little bit of skin get ripped off of a forearm or something like that, and then, uh, and like you said, the kind of gray makeup. Yeah, especially in that finale in Dawn, you know, it is, it's messy in terms of just there's a lot happening, they jump back and forth between people, there's a lot of kills where you're thinking why 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 are you just sat having you know your, your, your blood <laughs> yeah. pressure tested while <laughs> yes. surrounded by something so, uh, I, get, I get people may not be of sound mind but you know it's like whereas you know a lot of this is in day it becomes you know it's arrogance and again that that need for some kind of action that just sort of costs people you know, you know especially Rhodes and his uh, you know iconic death that, that uh, by the hands of a zombie in one way and then by literally by the hands of another zombie in another it's a uh, it's uh, a very fitting sort of little death for him and i think that there's a certain level of irony to all of the deaths in uh day of the dead in that for, especially the soldiers right they're supposed to be the ones that are in charge because they're the ones that are built to handle this apocalypse mm. and yet i always think about that one soldier that is laughing throughout the film and he's like uh, Steele's buddy essentially. And he's laughing throughout the film. And I always interpret that for the first half of the film as like, yeah, he's not taking this seriously, probably because he's like half in the bag or he's stoned the entire time. And he's not treating any of this like reality. But then it's really disturbing when he finally gets jumped by the zombies. And even when he knows he's about to get killed, he's still laughing the same way as if this is not real, as if this is not, uh, of reality that he's in and so to just show that that's not somebody that is actually like taking this whole situation lightly mm. or has written off the idea that like 
anything could ever hurt them. It's just, it's more, it's somebody that's cracking up. Yeah. And to never focus on that or dedicate a lot of scenes to that, like having an instance where that particular soldier maybe like has a major breakdown or something, it's kind of just very subtle. And like you had mentioned, it's a small little moment throughout the film of him just like laughing, treating everything like a joke to then in the final moments of his life, he doesn't change his behavior. No. It just speaks to the idea that like this guy has been cracking up for not only the whole movie, but weeks, months, potentially years. And that really kind of adds a certain amount of tragedy. Again, coming back to the concept of this film being largely a tragedy, but it really just adds some emotional weight to that character, even if you're not supposed to like them necessarily. But at the same time, it's somebody that's not of sound mind dying by getting their face ripped off or getting their guts ripped open, which kind of just makes that death care. It's a noticeable death. It's not sort of a throwaway gory moment. Yeah, I, it's there's a lot of stuff like that, like uh, with Miguel and his constant struggle, you know, where the warning signs are there constantly. It's, advocate that he have a break and because he's cracking it and losing and the way he ends up treating Sarah in his increasingly frenzied state and you know he's the he's clearly wanting out of this whole environment any way possible he's you know he's suicidal at, at, at that point more so than when he loses his arm later in the film and yeah you know he is ultimately by not caring for him and again not communicating as a group and that he is their downfall because he, he goes and takes them all down with him yeah he's one of those characters throughout the film that I almost have the most uh, <laughs> I don't know the least amount of sympathy for just because everybody is in the same boat and yet he is I mean, he is one of the military guys, but supposedly he has a romantic relationship mm. with Sarah. And yet he basically treats her just like an object the whole movie. And it's like, and nobody is happy about the situation they're in, but it's very interesting to see how certain people react to that and who they choose to lash out at. Yeah. And his character is one that I think has always rubbed me the wrong way because of that, mm. right? He's got this person that he essentially has, uh, has seeked out to have a relationship with. And yet he blames her for everything, yeah. right? Which is not necessarily a uh, a new depiction of men in power with women, but it's just this idea that the person that's responsible for all of the problems in his life, he attributes to her, yeah. who is probably the only person there that actually like gave a shit about him because clearly the soldiers don't because his boss is like, don't give him any sedatives. He needs to be on duty and fulfill his, his role here. And she's like, well, he hasn't slept in a day. And he's like, it doesn't matter. And so for him to lash out at this person that is trying to argue on his behalf of like what he needs to be effective or to be uh, sustain a certain quality of life like that's very telling of that character and how the situation affects everybody differently but to a certain extent everybody has a choice in how they choose to react in the situation mm -hmm. and i think again you mentioned john john and uh mcdermott are the two characters that are like we don't care about what's happening here and yet that indifference doesn't change us into having an attitude similar to the military where it's like, oh, we're going to like belittle people and lash out at people when things go wrong. They're sort of indifferent to the end goal of the their uh, their position in life, yeah. I guess. But at the same time, it doesn't fundamentally alter who they are as people. And I think that that's why I like those characters so much is that you would almost hope that 
you would want to be like them. Yeah. Essentially, if you weren't a scientist or a military guy, you would want to be those two. They're sort of just riding the wave, and yet they're not trying to pushing somebody else's head underwater while they're riding that wave. Yeah, absolutely. But I think also in terms of the sort of just cynical nature of Day of the Dead compared to the previous two films, I'm actually really happy with the type of ending that we got in that so much of the film is so bleak in reinforcing the idea that there is no hope in that the time for going back or winding the clock back in terms of a reality that does not have zombies or the undead is long gone. And so to finally get a happy ending for one of these films, I think, is very satisfying in a way that I couldn't truly appreciate again, like when I was a kid and saw this because didn't have the context of the other two films, but also just again, picking up on how bleak this film is for 90% of the movie and then getting to see a happy ending that I would say maybe it's more of an op- uh, optimistic ending. It's not necessarily yeah. happy because we don't know how long they can survive. Sure. But we're optimistic that they could survive. This is it. And it comes back to the idea of acceptance. And that, you know, that they have accepted that the old ways can't work and they should just do what they can with what they've got. And thus it makes the ending work because as tonally different as it is from the rest of the film, it's earned, you know, by, by the, the lesson throughout, as we said with John and McDermott basically acting as the avatar for acceptance of the situation is there, you know, the lesson is what you're doing is futile. There aren't enough of us to make a difference anymore. The time has gone and passed. We need to do something else that, and you know, so the people that did ended up being the ones that live and get to be relatively happy for a bit, you know, for how as long as it needs to last. I, I recently watched rewatched The Faculty, and there's a film with an ending that is so ridiculously upbeat that it just feels odd next to the rest of the film. You know, like everybody gets a, the absolute maximum happy ending no one really ended up hurt out of it all and it's just like it's like I, as much as i love that film in a lot of ways that ending is always feels like the studio saying nah it can't be bleak yeah the, the, yeah the true ending of that film would have been you know they were all taken over and assimilated and they're all you know happy with that if you will that that's what you were expecting from the way that film was going uh, but yeah that's an instance of you know, where a happy ending isn't really earned in a, in a, ble- a relatively bleak film. Yeah, and whereas this is, yeah, it's if it was just relentlessly bleak, it would have been you know, like that. It, it is just not holding on to the old things. And that that's a, the best part about it. It just keeps that message consistent throughout. I want to, yeah, I definitely would not describe it, even though I just did a minute ago, like as being the happy ending, right? It's more about these people that at least wanted the opportunity to find some sort of happiness in this new world, I think, is much more powerful because it's still ambiguous about whether or not they survive for a day or they survive for uh, the rest of their natural lives to a certain extent. But to have it, like, let's say they get to the island and then they see like a military ship out in the ocean come to save them, like, at that point, it almost feels too at odds with the bleak nature of the film, right? You can't really go from, you could, but I, I don't think for this film you could go from one extreme to the other. And so to have it end on this ambiguous but optimistic note 
that feels much more fitting with the world that Romero has been crafting for the last three films, right? I think that's one of the things that I really like about Dawn of the Dead's ending is that especially after Night, which did not have a optimistic <laughs> ending, that has the most depressing ending of, yeah. of any of his films in this. A depressing and um, final ending. It makes you feel like, well, that's it. Yes. Everything will be okay now. Mm -hmm. you know, as much as it's bad things have happened, they've solved the problem. And you know, as mm -hmm. it seems to tie in later, it clearly didn't. It was just the beginning. And Something that I really like about Day of the Dead, even though it's not a continuation of a specific narrative or characters, it's still a continuation of the world and where the world is at mm. that he's crafted, this undead world. But also there's just that very sort of brief connection where Dawn ends optimistically where the helicopter is flying off and Day of the Dead, it's obviously not unintentional that it picks up with a helicopter, again, yeah. landing and searching for people. And so even though it's not a continuation of character arc or any of the characters from Dawn returning, it's still the idea that it makes you think about dawn and you're like well that couldn't have been a happy ending because it's an optimistic one it's if they did escape and they didn't run out of gas immediately perhaps they just flew up and down the coast for 100 miles in every direction and never found anything or maybe they found another civilization or something like that and so i love that romero has the restraint that he doesn't give audiences an ending that some might be happy with but also at the same time it's one that's very true to the world and the unknowing nature mm. of this zombie apocalypse. We don't get the happy ending. We don't get a sad ending. And we just get an ending that it says, this is their journey that they went on. And you can either agree with the choices they made or not. But at the end of the day, it doesn't necessarily solve all their problems or they're not necessarily 100% vindicated in the choices mm. they make. They just made choices and they've worked out so far for them. But in the apocalypse, you can't think about long-term. You can only think this about short-term happiness or short-term safety. This is it. Um, what was I going to say? Um, you know, it was interesting. Uh, it's the first time I rewatched this since seeing Joe Pilato, who played Rhodes. Actually seeing him in something very different, playing a nice guy, if you will, in a, a low-budget film made by a bunch of uh, the dead bunch uh, called Effects. And yeah, which is basically about the shooting of a low-budget horror movie, and it becomes a it becomes mm. a bit of a snuff movie, and Pilato ends up being like the centre of it all unwittingly. Like that, yeah, it's mm. just it was made me appreciate his performance in Day a lot more because he is such a, <laughs> he's actually quite a nice, you know, amiable guy in that in effects and. Here, you know, in a bunch, when well, in a film with a bunch of assholes, really, you know, Savini literally playing himself as an asshole you know, in that film, and like, <laughs> and yeah, it's and seeing him then going back to roads again, it's just like, yeah, that's yeah, grand stuff, absolute grand stuff. He certainly uh, earns that horrific death that he gets at the end of the movie because <laughs> yeah. his performance is one that definitely I think stands out amongst all of the original Dead trilogy in that for me like when I came to the film I didn't know who he was I hadn't seen him in anything else and to have somebody come in as a complete unknown and leave such a defining mark on the film um, I think is I mean it's an amazing performance and it's one that again it could be so easy to have somebody come in and play like the deranged military leader that's cracked mm. up and now he's making interests that are or he's doing things that are in his best interest rather than the group's best interest like that's a that could be a very generic role mm. 
And yet his range of kind of lunacy and how that really escalates throughout the film, he's always, his sort of cracking up is always evident when we meet him, right? Yeah. He seems unstable. And yet I love the passage of time in the film is so broad or so um, it's just unknown throughout the yeah. film. And so to kind of gauge the passage of time based on how much he ramps up in terms of him cracking up and becoming more and more extreme and more sort of authoritarian uh, within this subterranean community, I think is one that helps to really measure where the narrative is at because you don't really know other than at the very beginning of the film and the end of the film with the calendars, it's only been about probably a month, I think. Um, but in terms of never addressing that, I think is impressive that you can have that play out to a certain extent based on a character's uh, evolving behaviors. Yeah, I think that, that played perfectly in that regard, that they are just trying to make it seem like it could be any stretch of time. It could be, it could be, it could be a week, it could be a day, it could be a year in terms of, because they're underground, uh, it just seems like any other day like that and which you know it contributes to that cabin fever effect of like you know, we could go outside next size but if we go we'll rile up the zombies if we go upstairs we go we've got nowhere else to go there's only so much fuel i'm sure they could have until they'd eventually run out and yeah so it's yeah it is a very effective part of that film in terms of it could actually be anything in terms of time the uh, indefinite house arrest zombie apocalypse film. Romero continues to uh, to redefine the uh, the subgenre within subgenres. But yeah, I think that I'm glad that you picked this film for us to talk about mm. because it's one that I think probably gets the least amount of love in terms of that original, in the conversation of that original trilogy, mm. right? And I think that it's very easy to, again, as you mentioned early on, like to cast any sort of criticism on any of those films is done so with the reality that these are three five-star films, yeah. right? So it's when you cast some sort of judgment or critique, it's like, that's very valid. But at the end of the day, they're five-star films. So it's like, you have to take everything with that in mind. Absolutely. I think that this is the film that really applies the lens to people and showing different portrayals of people that are undeniable in the sense that it's an extreme situation, but it isn't really an extreme portrayal of people. And I mm. think when people can be rather reductive when talking about Day of the Dead and saying it's just people shouting, there's nothing unrealistic about that. And there's no instance where they have these shouting matches that it feels trivial. It never becomes them bickering over things that don't matter, right? It's always, there's some sort of root of whatever they're arguing about that has a basis in the real world. Yeah. And it, even though the context is zombies, what the very specifics that they're arguing about is solutions that will better mankind yeah. and will better their situation and that is the basis of real world conversations and real world conflict and whether you have the backdrop of the undead or not people will uh will definitely react to the same in a similar fashion yeah it ends up being about you know, self-preservation first at all times and yeah that's uh, definitely in the last few years become very present as a thing and it sort of validates many films where that might have seemed a little unrealistic in much the same way that you know people often decry the idea of having uh, environmental storytelling in video games you know where people write messages on walls or leave notes behind and yet you see this shit happening <laughs> it's like now you know it's a you, you see these very blatant <laughs> things like written on walls and like big events and stuff but like shit but yeah that, that would happen <laughs> in a video. <laughs> so 
I mean, that environmental storytelling, that is unbiased documentation of an event or a mm. period or a movement and things like that. And it's like, you're getting a raw firsthand source. And I think that's a great point that you made in that, that environmental storytelling is one that no matter, like if you get a film and it's whether you agree with certain characters or not, you get a, you get the most pure distillation of the mood of what is occurring mm. in this event based on things like that. You kind of pick up a letter that somebody wrote to a loved one when they got bitten and they think they're going to die. That's going to be a very real, uh, a real unflinching kind of look at their mindset and how they feel and very raw emotions. Whereas if you see something written on a wall, that's kind of like speaking to a larger scenario that's happening, you kind of get the idea of like where the common man is mm. at in this period, because who's writing on the walls. It's not going to be the people in positions of power. No. It's going to be people that are at a street level that are kind of like in the mix as it were, no matter what the event is, whether it's zombies or, whether it's a climate disaster that's affecting communities differently, things like that. Yeah. So that's a great point. Absolutely. As always, man, it's a pleasure to have you on to talk not only horror, but in this instance, uh, to chat Romero. Yeah, uh, uh, it's always something I'm more than keen to talk about. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to Daily Horror Habit on your preferred streaming service and follow the show on Instagram at Daily Horror Habit and on Twitter at Daily Horror Pod for episode updates. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you guys next time.